Welcome to Brain Beat, the podcast series of the National Academy of Neuropsychology, otherwise known as NAN. I'm Dr. Peter Arnett, immediate past president of NAN, and I'll be your host today. It's a pleasure for me to introduce our guest today, Dr. Monroe Cullum, who'll be talking with us about sports-related concussion. Dr. Cullum is a professor of psychiatry, neurology, and neurological surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, where he holds the Pamela Blumenthal Distinguished Professorship in Clinical Psychology and serves as vice chair of psychiatry and senior neuropsychologist in the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute. Dr. Cullum is a board-certified neuropsychologist. He's involved in research, education, administration, and clinical service delivery. He has served our field in multiple roles at the national level through his organizational commitments and has contributed to all of our major organizations over the past 30 years of his career. Dr. Cullum is a past president of NAN, as well as the Society for Clinical Neuropsychology, the APA Division 40, and currently is the president of the Sports Neuropsychology Society. His research focuses on short and long-term effects of concussion, as well as neuropsychological aspects of neurodegenerative conditions and the use of telehealth techniques in neuropsychology. Welcome, Dr. Cullum. Thanks for joining us for BrainBeat today. Thanks very much, Peter. It's uh, delightful to be here, and I'm very pleased and honored to be able to contribute to this series. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks again. So you've been conducting work on sports-related concussion for many years and are currently the president of the Sports Neuropsychology Society. How did you get involved in studying sports concussion in the first place? That's an interesting long-term question. So as a graduate student, I had the distinct pleasure of working with Aaron Bigler, uh, who is one of the greats in our field, it continues to be interested in traumatic brain injury. So I think that really spurred some of my initial interests. Secondly, it is a very common injury. And actually, if you think about it, most of us either have experienced or know someone who's experienced a concussion or some level of traumatic brain injury. It's a very common experience. It's also, it's not genetically determined. There are different risk factors for it. And there's so much we still don't know about concussion. Well, I also had very active kids. My son, I think, did everything on the top 20 list of things you can do to get a concussion plus some. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's been a, a fascinating condition that we still are, are learning so much about. So it, it's always intrigued me and also how it might influence the onset or clinical manifestation of other neurocognitive disorders as well. Yeah, very interesting. And I, I can relate to the thing about your kids too. My kids, at least our son played a lot of contact sports and yeah, it was, it was definitely a concern, shall we say. <laughs> now the standard model in neuropsychology for conducting testing in sports concussion has for many years been the baseline model, as you know, that is athletes are given a test battery before they begin their participation in a sport, then they're retested on the same battery if they subsequently sustain a concussion. The results are then compared with their baseline scores to assess whether they've shown a decline from their baseline. Now, is that still the best model and how important is baseline testing for athletes in general? That is an ongoing debate in our field and in related fields, quite honestly. And I believe it is still the, the general standard for most uh, professional sports, for sure. The NHL, followed by the NFL, were some of the earliest adopters and developers of sports concussion programs that did include mm -hmm. baseline testing. It's obviously, it can be very useful when you have it, assuming the baseline results are valid, you know, well-standardized tools are used to obtain the, the data and standardized conditions are present as well. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of caveats with it. It's, it's been a widespread use of computerized testing to establish the baseline. Obviously, any additional information we can get on our patients uh, in their 
premorbid state, if you will, is always useful. It often doesn't exist in the majority of cases most of us see clinically, but in the area of sports concussion, it's kind of an, just an extra little advantage we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there are pros and cons and there are limitations. As I mentioned, you have to have valid data to start with the baseline. And sometimes mm-hmm. the tests uh, are administered in uh, somewhat non-standard fashion, shall we say, or in too large a group without adequate proctoring in some school situations and whatnot. Yeah, sure. You know, you really do need a, a well-informed user to interpret the results appropriately. Where I think is most helpful is cases where there might be some sort of pre-existing condition, co-warming with the concussion, such as a learning difference or a attention problem or something like that. Because otherwise, if all you have is the post-injury assessment and someone's low on their attention scores, one might erroneously ascribe the low tension scores to the concussion when in fact that may be their baseline level of function. So it's particularly useful in some cases, should be required. It depends a lot on the setting and the context, but the more data we can get on, on people, the better for sure. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. Like it seems intuitively like a very appealing model, a situation where we, we often don't get the opportunity to know where somebody was before they had an injury. Uh, you did mention some validity concerns too, like at the Tests are administered in non-standardized conditions or in a group setting, what have you. Are there any other concerns that you have about the baseline testing model? Any other validity concerns that people should be aware of? It's pretty well known at this point in time, but when we first started doing these types of tests in the NHL, the NFL, gosh, it must have been about 25 years ago now was when I started mm-hmm. with those leaks. Sandbagging uh, was an issue where the athlete at baseline would purposefully not put forth their best effort. Uh, it was the assumption that then if we retest him or her, that, you know, we might not pick up on an actual deficit. I, I remember testing one high level prominent athlete after this person, I think he recalled, you know, three out of 10 words on delayed recall. I said, come on, you, you gotta be able to do more than that. <laughs> and, uh, he just grinned in a, in a three <laughs> purposeful way. I said, that's all I got for you, doc. I knew exactly what he was doing. And of course, that's an invalid baseline, which is not going to be useful. I think we're seeing far, far less of that in this day and age, although Hmm. it still happens with adolescents and uh, feeling the literature, probably an estimated 20 or 25% of cases. So it's it's still an issue uh, or if the person's just really not taking it seriously, that can be a problem too. So validity is something that really can't underscore enough in It's sometimes the case that not even some of the standard validity indicators built into some of the computerized batteries necessarily pick up on what looks like an invalid performance. So I think that's what clinicians have to be particularly careful. So it sounds like in addition to using those objective markers of validity, then some clinical acuity, if you will, is necessary in those situations. Absolutely. I mean, it it always falls back to clinical decision-making, I think, regardless of what the scores necessarily suggest. One of the things that sometimes isn't flagged on, especially baseline performance, is just a very low score. So, you know, you have to think, does a first percentile level performance for your patient in an uninjured state make sense? If you don't pay attention to that, you may say, oh, they didn't decline. Oh, they're still at the first percentile. Well, hold on, or what's, what's going on? Yeah, it makes sense. Kind of related to this issue that we've been talking about regarding baseline testing, are there alternatives to that standard baseline model that you think might be better? For example, as you know, there have been a lot of studies on base rates of impairments 
in the neuropsychological literature. Is that a reasonable alternative or some other, say, kind of hybrid model or something else? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, there are alternatives, and I, I think we should consider all, all quite honestly. The hybrid model of assessment, I think, is, is particularly important. We actually consider all, all these factors. If you're using a computerized battery, uh, for example, in the NFL and NHL, if there's an injury, we usually come in and then we'll do a standard pencil, paper, question, answer, brief battery test. In addition to the computerized batteries, you get more data out of it. Now, I think the more data we have, these are brief assessments also. You know, for example, if you only give one measure of verbal learning and the patient's not paying attention during it, they get a low score. Is that really a valid score? Uh, that's uh, clinical judgment comes in. It, it's really assisted by having more than one measure of a particular construct. And as I think most of the listeners know, the uh, factor analytics studies, a lot of computerized batteries come out with maybe two, maybe three factors. Maybe processing speed being a really strong one in most cases. But I think yes. 30 base rates in the pyramid. And, and people sometimes will criticize, oh, you don't have a baseline. No. Well, we don't in the majority of cases that neuropsychologists see, yet we're able to do, I think, a pretty good job in most of those cases as well, in terms of right. more of a function. Yeah, it makes sense. So it sounds like really the more data we have, the better um, in terms of making these decisions. Now, back to the issue of actually sustaining a concussion. Um, what are some of the most common symptoms that athletes experience after they've had a concussion? As with the rest of the concussion literature, I mean, concussion symptoms are pretty, I mean, they are heterogeneous uh, because no two patients will experience the same symptoms, but certain symptoms are, are extremely common. You know, headache is seen in about 90% of cases at some point during recovery. Other things like feeling foggy or having initial memory retrieval problems, light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, those sort of things are very, very common as well. And those are pretty universal across cultures and across gender issues and uh, sociodemographic factors as well. So that's an important thing to look at when one is looking at the likely diagnosis of concussion as well. Given what happened to that individual, what is the likelihood that this represents concussion? You right. obviously have a hit to your bed that does not produce concussion but might give you a headache, for example, or it just hurts and there's other various shapes involved. So, you know, it's to the dead or blows to the body or not always concussion inducing, but that's something important to keep in mind too. You don't have to actually have a hit to your head to experience a concussion. You just have to shake up the brain enough to cause that brief disruption in in normal cognitive efficiency or cognitive functioning to produce symptoms. And then how long do most athletes usually take before they're back to normal after sports-related concussion? That's an age-related question, too. Kids tend to take longer to recover than adolescents who take longer to recover than adults. With adults, typically recovery in most of our athletes is well within a week. And uh, you could say for the younger people, it might be 10 to 14 days, up to three weeks. And younger kids really depends a lot. We're learning more and more about what some risk factors are for lingering symptoms that are being reported after concussion in some cases, but the vast majority do tend to recover completely and relatively quickly. So it does sound like those developmental factors are really key though, like the age at which the person might sustain a concussion is going to importantly determine how quickly they might get back to normal. Absolutely. And it does appear that it takes longer for the young brain to recover. Now, what if an athlete doesn't get back to normal in the usual time frame? I mean, it depends on the set, obviously. 
There are return to play and return to learn protocols for you get a lot of situations. Yeah, obviously, all the pro sports have their graded uh, return to play protocols that typically will involve some early light exercise in where you look for exacerbation of symptoms or onset of new symptoms. And if that occurs, then you kind of back off to the previous level and then you keep increasing that. The increasing research you know, that's being done is clearly showing, though, that we really need to get these folks back to their pretty normal routines as quickly as possible. Many of us have seen cases that concussions sustain and uh, do correct concern or whatever. They're removed from sport. They might even be removed from school for an extended period. Even in the absence of strong symptoms suggesting that that's necessarily the best thing to do. And of course, we have to be mindful of the potential symptoms that can occur unrelated to the concussion itself, but related to the nature of the injury. So for example, if you take a 15-year-old child out of their normal routine, out of school, and suddenly they're getting all this attention at home for this injury, they're out of their, uh, out of their normal social realm and behavioral realm. It can be quite distressing to them and such that some of the symptoms they didn't begin to display may be misinterpreted as concussion symptoms when it's just a matter of, you know, I miss my friends. I'm worried about what's going on with me. My brain wasn't thinking quite right. Now my parents are also concerned about this and now I've got my anxiety going up. It can kind of result in this whirlwind of concern and anxiety and reports of lingering symptoms in some cases. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's really changed over the years too. Like it used to be that um, rest was the main option after somebody had a concussion. And now in more recent years, that seems to have changed quite a bit. As you say, you want to get the person back to their activity level as quickly as reasonably possible, just given some of those concerns of things that might be problematic if they are out of their sport for too long. Right. I will say that some early initial rest is still recommended. Uh, just not prolonged because that right. iatrogenic effects, but early rest and uh, not too much. One of the big research challenges to, to our field and related fields is what is the optimal treatment for each individual, right? What is the best treatment in general? What is the best for your particular patient in their life situation? The general guidelines, yes, are getting back to their usual routine, but you know, we actually, we need more research done on what are the indicators for specific types of interventions, but, you know, some initial, like you mentioned years ago, you know, there's all sorts of folklore as to what you should do, you know, make sure you, I remember hearing, wake them up every hour if they fall asleep. <laughs> what are you going to have with that 15 year old if you wake them up every, that could be pretty terrible the next yeah. day, right? <laughs> and then that yeah, exactly. ability, you think, oh my gosh, they're still symptomatic when in fact, no, you just poke them every hour. And right. So we have, we're definitely learning more and more in that. Early light uh, exercise and elegant studies uh, by Letty's group have clearly shown that that early, early light uh, aerobic exercise, again, not to where it's producing symptoms or exacerbated symptoms, is it actually seems to be a, a good thing and be uh, associated with better outcomes. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's, it sounds like it requires some careful monitoring too, just to make sure the athlete doesn't overexert themselves as they're kind of getting back to activity. So in terms of concussion management, are there particular symptoms that you're more concerned about than others or constellations of symptoms that you would be particularly concerned about if they persisted longer than expected? I think we have to pay attention to any lingering symptoms that, that, are, that are presented, but it's a complex challenge clinically because some people lose sight of the, of the, the key question is, 
well, did you have these symptoms before? Right. Yeah, right. So sometimes, you know, you say, oh my gosh, they've still got headaches. Well, hang on. Did they have headaches before? Are they qualitatively or, or quantitatively different now? So that, that's one issue. Other symptoms, yes, obviously, you know, ongoing severe headaches, they're incapacitating, uh, clearly ongoing dizziness, visual symptoms. Those are things to be more worried about. In the acute stage, obviously, prolonged vomiting, clumsiness, imbalance, those are hard signs, obviously, to go get evaluated. But as far as lingering, the ones that seem to be uh, more challenging to assess and treat are sometimes this report of mental fogginess. Arguably a neuropsychological domain, if you will, for us to evaluate, but uh, sometimes the complaints are quite vague and, and difficult to assess. Uh, so it really does, it, it takes some detailed symptom reporting and it's challenging because at the end of the day, we're relying a lot upon their self-reported symptoms and it has a new mini condition. Some of the symptoms, uh, some of the signs of concussion are observable. The symptoms are things that are reported to us and those are the ones that can kind of linger and, and co-mingle, if you will, with other psychological factors, whatever's going on in their life. And that's see can cause their own set of problems. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, there could be pre-existing things too, like problems with headaches or depression or anxiety that preceded the concussion that have nothing to do with it and could easily be interpreted as reflecting a post-concussion syndrome if you don't sort of do your due diligence there, I guess, as a clinician. Now, kind of related to what we were talking about in terms of persisting symptoms, uh, we hear a lot about post-concussion syndrome. Do you think that's a real syndrome? And kind of relatedly, is that treatable? Great question. Uh, ongoing debate in our field, for sure. I think because it's become such a catch-all hodgepodge term, I'm not sure it has a lot of clinical utility, quite honestly. I mean, all it really can be is that somebody had a concussion, probably had it, or may, may have had a concussion. But I think what we need to focus on is the, is the current symptoms patient is presenting with, and let's address those and let's treat those. I think the use of that term can actually, I think, be unfortunate for some patients who really identify with that and say, oh my gosh, I've been diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome. That was five years ago. No, I still have trouble remembering where I placed my glasses. You know, I misplaced them, you know, all, all the time or whatever in that brain injury. So kind of keeps dredging up thoughts as opposed to trying to get the patient moved past Whatever happened in the past, and, and let's say, let's, let's just focus on the symptoms you're having now, and let's treat them. And I, and I think that's, that's a more appropriate way. So I think the post-concussion term or the post-concussion syndrome term is falling out of favor. I mean, I think we're, we're talking more frequently now about lingering symptoms right. or just symptoms. Yeah, it makes sense. So in some ways, having this term to describe those symptoms can be counterproductive in some sense in terms of... Patients really identifying with that and then that providing some kind of an impediment to them getting better. Better to focus just on the symptoms and treating those. Now, kind of related to that, uh, you had mentioned earlier that we know a little bit more about some of the risk factors for lingering symptoms, if you will, after concussion. What are some of those risk factors? What, what do we know about that at this point? Well, a couple of things. Obviously, risk factors for lingering symptoms include prior history of concussion. There's some data suggesting there may be some Sex differences also in the expression or recording of lingering symptoms, although that, that's an area of debate and ongoing yeah. inquiry. And then the, the biggest predictor of lingering symptoms is severity and initial symptoms, though, especially with a hit of anxiety. If anxiety is, is elevated even a little bit at that initial assessment, that's somebody that I think we need to pay a little bit greater attention to because it does seem to put them in a higher risk category for 
being someone who's still maybe reporting symptoms for an unusually longer amount of time. And just regarding, uh, you make a really interesting point there regarding anxiety. Now, is that something that you would formally evaluate in your assessment of an athlete following concussion, like with some kind of standardized measure? Or would it be more like a clinical determination, some combination there? I'm just curious, like how you would typically approach that. That, that's a great question. In, in our research, we do include the uh, the GAD-7, a, a really brief screening tool for the right. assessment uh, of anxiety. And clinically, I like to use that too. Anxiety assessment is not built into all routine sports concussion evaluations though, but at least having an examiner pay some attention to that. You know, I yeah. like to quantify things so I can see if things are changing over time. Even if I do just a crude, what's your anxiety like on scale one to 10? Even right. if I do that, just clinically, but I think that's an under-assessed and underappreciated aspect of our sports, a lot of sports concussion evaluations. Also. Yeah, it seems like it could be really valuable, especially if you had the information at baseline as well. Like you mentioned the GAD-7, if you have that at baseline, you could do a direct comparison, see whether, you know, the person just had a lot of pre-existing anxiety or really was directly in response to the concussion. Kind of related to that, we do know that at least some studies have shown that depression tends to increase following a concussion in terms of any formal measurement of that is that something you measure formally as well or is it something more like a clinical determination at this point in athletes that you work with yeah so we we do include screening measure of depression in our research as well uh we usually teach q8 i mean i think any depression screening tool probably be useful again understanding what their history of depression is i think can be very useful and then a, a careful examination of other life stressors as well. So what's going right. on beyond this injury itself? Because mm-hmm. um, the more red flags, if you will, or risk factors for lingering symptoms, the more the clinician should be attuned to paying attention to those things and making sure we're addressing those uh, early on. And mm-hmm. In terms of treating those sort of things, I think a, a lot of simple psychoeducation is really, really useful. Setting expectations for recovery, and helping them understand what's going on with them. You know, some right. patients after concussion may feel like they're going crazy or, you know, my mind just isn't working right. What's going on? And no one gives them any reassurance. Like, you know, your brain's been jostled around. It's going to take some time to recover. Uh, and these stages of recovery are normal. It can be actually quite frightening. Indeed. Now, most athletes don't undergo neuroimaging following a concussion, but what circumstances would warrant that? Yeah, most of the major organizations in pediatrics and uh, sports medicine recommend that really imaging is, is only indicated if there's some clear warning sign of Larry asymmetry, a lot of nausea, I'm sorry, a lot of vomiting, extended loss of consciousness. Uh, those are right. indicators. But the typical routine concussion image usually is recommended before for most cases. And I, I hear that a lot from patients' families that you know, will come in and say, they're worried because their physician didn't do a CT scan or, or right. an MRI, right? That would have shown the concussion, although we know concussions usually don't show up on those uh, sort of scans. So really then looking for intracranial bleeding or, or other clear signs of damage or other factors, you know, other comorbid pathologies that might exist. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you had mentioned this a little bit earlier where we were talking about just how to manage athletes following concussion. How much rest is good for concussion treatment? What's typical? Is, are we talking a few days here, a few hours? Is that really going to depend on the athlete and the severity of the concussion? Uh, there may be some other factors as well. But. 
There are so many factors. It's a very individual decision. There's really not like a prescription per se, but we usually say, uh, take the rest of the day off, you know, rest a, a, a couple of days, kind of quote, couple that could right. be two days. It might be three, just really depends on the nature of their symptoms too. And we know that the process that was recommended by some for a while in the so-called cocooning, where you put them in a dark room and, you know, don't let them look at any, you know, LCD screens or anything like stimulate them. and mm-hmm. That's probably not a good way to go because you can induce some symptoms. They do things like that too, but some initial risk to reduce their physical activity and reduce their cognitive activity too. As long as the activity is stimulating or worsening symptoms or bringing on new symptoms, if they just kind of reduce their activity level for what they normally do, kind of chill for a couple of days, back off on the various activities. And certainly avoid things that make the symptoms worse. In some cases, right. might need reading for a student in school. They might need to lighten up on that. If playing the video games makes their headache worse, they stop that. But in, in a minimum, kind of reduce stimulation, if you will, for yeah. a couple of days. Those seem like some pretty good, maybe not prescriptions, but uh, seem like pretty good guidelines in terms of managing folks after they've had a concussion. Any other treatments that you would recommend or things that are considered for concussion? I mean, the other treatments are all dependent upon the symptoms. So many things. Uh, problems with balance or vestibular issues, see a vestibular specialist for treatment. If, it, if it's headaches, that's something that honestly ought to probably see a doctor about as well to get the most recommended treatment for that. Ongoing okay. pain can make people irritable, obviously. Maybe even depressed. It, it can make them lethargic. It can make them feel foggy too. So mm-hmm. I think treating those symptoms, especially headache, uh, it is important early on so that practitioners can start as early as possible sorting out what may be concussion-related versus other injury-related or caused by some other factors. So I usually recommend one of the symptoms and what needs to be treated and what's likely to resolve over time. Obviously, if Light sensitivity is an issue that, yeah, you know, don't go into quietly lit areas where sunlight right. need to. Yeah. Uh, teachers need to be aware of this and some students as well. Mm-hmm. So we do encourage a lot of communication of like family with teachers and also especially of, of the patients with their families as well. These are symptoms that others often can't see. I know the NFL, the NHL been really big about, you know, reporting to your colleagues, coaches, trainers. You right. don't feel like you're up to snuff. And say something. And then what about blood tests for concussion? There's been some increasing discussion of that in the literature. Do they work? Are there certain blood tests that are effective in determining whether someone's had a concussion? Right now, that's the, I think, one of the holy grails in that concussion search. Everybody's looking for a blood-based biomarker. We don't have any right now that will diagnose concussion. It's, it's a clinical diagnosis. A while back, uh, there was an FDA-approved test the headline said test for concussion. It was actually a right. test for bleeding in the brain, which can happen mm-hmm. following a head injury. It's pretty rare in concussion, but that's what that test was actually okay. about. <laughs> we were trying to reduce the uh, frequency of CT stents, uh, reduced exposure to radiation or whatnot. I know there are a bunch of companies working on the blood-based biomarkers, and there are some that are indicators of your own dysfunction, but they don't seem to be specific to concussion uh, just yet. Although the search continues. All right. Well, that's all good stuff. Now, uh, I want to kind of turn now to problems people might experience later on in life after they've had a concussion. So what is the risk of later in life cognitive problems, things like dementia related to concussion? 
big area of discussion here for sure. Uh, and it's yeah. a popular topic in the media. Like, I don't think you can open up a sports related web page or hear an interview with a pro athlete or former pro athlete without hearing some concern or something about that. So right. the, the actual risk of developing a neurodegenerative condition after concussion is pretty low. If right. you look at across the literature overall, and this includes even more serious TBIs, it's about 7%. So it's not a huge risk. And I always remind patients that the vast majority of people after an uncomplicated concussion recover completely and have no long-term later in life sequelae from it. So most people that get a concussion will turn out either normal or they will suffer other age-related conditions that, that we're all susceptible to. Right, that made it have nothing to do with the concussion. Right. Now, there seems to be, if you look at patients uh, with a diagnosis of, for example, Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment or frontotemporal dementia, if they do report a history of traumatic brain injury, loss of consciousness five minutes or greater, they do seem to be at a greater risk of developing the disease a little bit earlier than if they don't have that in their background. These are right. correlational studies, though. We do not understand the, the mechanisms, but the take-home message from that whole line of research is we still don't understand the mechanism, and we cannot predict in any individual case. So okay. if I have a concussion today, and then I develop dementia 20 years later, there is no way to, to say it was related. Right. Other things can cause dementia, and concussion history does not prevent you from developing other neurological right. conditions. Makes sense. And then kind of related to this, what kind of advice do you have for athletes who might be considering retirement? Or I guess maybe a different way to phrase that is just, where do you get concerned about an athlete continuing to play and maybe advising retirement? Yeah. So again, very, very individual decision, uh, very individual discussion. Uh, but in general, what I recommend are if they've had a series of concussions and recovery has taken longer and longer with each injury or if they are not completely recovering from the most recent one. Those are the cases that worry me most. And those are the ones where I am more strong in advising thoughts of, of retirement. If somebody's had several concussions, though, I, I know some physicians that will say, oh, got to quit after three. That's <laughs> not based on any data I know of or have ever seen. And if they've recovered quite quickly from each of their three concussions, I don't know of any literature suggesting that they necessarily should retire from that. Right. Obviously, if somebody's had one concussion, they're at greater risk for others on down the road. So I always encourage, depends on the sport, of course, but you know, you encourage people to try to avoid getting more concussions, but that's right. And so the inherent job hazard uh, for a lot of our contact sport athletes, for sure. And it seems like one of the themes of what you've been telling us is just that managing concussion is a very individualized kind of a process Like you really have to take um, what is going on with any individual athlete and then determine a course of action accordingly. I firmly believe that. I mean, you know, the symptoms are heterogeneous and no two patients are alike either. You can't take one athlete's story and the outcomes and necessarily apply that to another. What I always do with when I'm dealing with uh, younger athletes is talk to the parents and, you know, their concern. But, and you talked about the pros and the cons. I've had some patients where I know that no matter what I say, they're going to keep doing their sport. For those, you just try to educate them as best as possible, give them your best advice. And, you know, you kind of hope for the best in those cases, but uh, everybody's a little bit different. Now, many parents are concerned about their children possibly developing CTE. 
short for, as you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. How worried should they be maybe related to some of the things that we've already been talking about? Is there a level of concern or worry here that they should prevent their children from playing in contact sports where there might be a high risk of concussion? What I tell people is posted on the Sports Neuropsychology Society website. We've got a CTE fact sheet there. CTE is a rare condition. So what I tell parents is it's just a rare disorder. The likelihood of your child developing this years and years down the road is quite unlikely. Statistically, they're, they're likely to have many, many other conditions or have things that like happen to them before they would ever get CTE. You know, right. I still don't know what actually causes it. There's so many unknowns about that condition. Although the media seems to gloss over the limitations of the literature and often goes to the high profile cases and reporting of the, of the brain pathology findings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to dissociate the whole syndrome from these very high profile cases of famous athletes and hard to kind of get to the bottom of uh, sort of where the truth lies in some of these things. Now, as I think you know, recent research criteria for traumatic encephalopathy syndrome or TES have been published. Now, first of all, is TES the same thing as CTE? That is a very good question. I don't know the answer to that quite honestly. The TES criteria were developed based on symptoms that are retrospectively reported by patients and their families of, from some of the uh, autopsy brains that uh, have been studied o- over the years. But the symptoms range very, very widely. The original TES criteria, there were several, you know, years ago now, um, more recently updated and made, they tried to focus it a little bit better. There's still an incredible array of symptoms that occur in a host of other conditions, uh, you know, a lot overlap with depression and other non-neurologic conditions, in fact. So they are research criteria. So I do remind people of that. Whether the new criteria actually relate to the pathology of CTE, I think still remains a question. We, we, you know, just because you find tau in certain regions of the brain doesn't necessarily mean that there's a behavioral correlate years earlier during life either. So not a lot to learn. We hope the new criteria are better than the old ones, a little more specific, but I'm not right. sure we're there yet. Yeah, it sounds like it's still a lot of uh, connecting the dots to do between these things. And regarding these new research criteria for TES, do you think they should be used clinically? No, I, I do not. I think it's very premature and, and potentially even, even dangerous for patients. I have seen patients who have been told that they likely have CTE, not even stopping short with the TES criteria told that they have a neuropathological diagnosis that really should not be done. Uh, there's been some really sad cases in the literature of people concerned about their memory slipping and here, some of the other symptoms ascribed to TES or CTE. And some people have taken their lives as a result of not wanting to be a burden family. They're then examined via autopsy and turned out they didn't have CTE. I mean, those are rare things. Concerning. Exactly. And uh, so... I think it's premature to use these terms clinically, uh, right. although it's out there, it's happening. But I, I right. think our job as neuropsychologists is to educate you know, patients, the families, but also the, the public and when we can, the media. Yes, they're really pulling the reins a little bit on some of these things. Now, do you have any final thoughts for us? We've talked about a lot of different things and this has been a fascinating discussion. Really appreciate you just taking this time for us today. But any final thoughts for us regarding sports-related concussion? It's a really fun subfield, if you will. I mentioned Sports Neuropsychology Society. 
We're coming up on our 10th annual meeting. There's actually it's a group of neuropsychologists that are focused on this area. I mean, it's just, it's been fascinating. It's also a wonderful area that brings together important cutting-edge research with real-world clinical problems and challenges. And fortunately or unfortunately, highlights how much research we still need to do to learn more about this very common condition, other conditions and risks may be associated with it. Right. And it's also, it's kind of fun for neuropsychology to have an area of study that actually is in the public eye because I think it actually increases attention to our field. Yeah, and I really like what you were alluding to earlier that there seems to be a real translational component to the society to really trying to use the research data that we have to then inform clinical decision-making and, and really kind of have that back and forth between the two to, to inform knowledge and care of sports-related concussion. Absolutely. And that now works both ways. I mean, a lot of the research ideas come from clinical work with patients. So I mean, it really is a two-way street. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Dr. Colm. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Really appreciate your time and sharing all that great information on sports-related concussion. Thank you very much, Peter. I enjoyed it. 